0: Leviticus chapter 16. In this passage that we will be looking at today, we'll um, be referring to the Day of Atonement. All right, the Day of Atonement. Leviticus chapter 16. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10 and then verses 20 through 22. It reads, The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. When they drew near before the Lord and died, the Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron not to come just at any time into the sanctuary inside the curtain, but for the mercy seat that is upon the ark or he will die. For I appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. Thus shall Aaron come into the holy place with a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen tunic and shall have the linen undergarments next to his body. Fasten the linen sash and wear the linen turban. These are the holy vestments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. He shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots on the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel or the scapegoat. Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and offered as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement for it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. I want to skip down to verse 20. It says, When he was finished atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, He shall present the live goat. Then Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat and sending it away into the wilderness by means of someone designated for the task. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a barren region and the goat shall be set free in the wilderness. Let's pray. God, I pray that you will open our understanding. I pray that you will help us to see exactly what took place so many years ago on the Day of Atonement and help us to see today how that applies to Christ and the sacrifice that he paid for us. I pray that you would give us wisdom, knowledge and understanding in all things. In Jesus name. Amen. Sometimes things happen around us or to us. And we are not satisfied or appeased until that thing is resolved or taken away. Uh, I was thinking of so many ways I could uh, kind of illustrate this, but the the one that came to me the 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 first and probably will be the funniest and uh, easiest for you all to remember is uh, a reference to Caris. Okay, so I don't know what it was uh, about hair. But Karis as a baby was scared of hair. <laughs> okay. Um it, it was the funniest thing ever uh because she had a lot of curly hair. So whenever we would put her in the bathtub, you know, sometimes her hair would, you know, pieces may fall come out, or whatever and, and be floating in the tub. And and she would completely freak out and panic because <laughs> of Hair in the tub, okay? I, I I later realized, I think she may have thought it was a spider or something, maybe, right? But she was so afraid of, of hair. and And the, the funny thing is, you had one of two choices if you did not want to be wet. You either had to get her out of the tub, or you had to get the hair out of the tub, okay? Because if it got anywhere close to her, she was hair, hair. She, she, you gotta get, you gotta get out there because water everywhere, right? And it is so funny. It, it became funny to us. It became a joke. We would just sometimes when we would put her in the seat to eat, we would, uh, <laughs> we would take a piece of hair and put it on the chair, and then try to, like, try to put her down, and she would literally contort her whole body. To, she would not touch that seat. <laughs> okay, right? She, she, she was so afraid of hair that no matter what you did she wasn't having it and there would be no peace or appeasement right or satisfaction until you got that hair out of her presence she was going to let you know she would climb up your whole body right to get away from it she would let you know that this being in her presence was displeasing to her her satisfaction was tied to the removal of what was frightful to her or offensive to her. Right? If, if you could not remove this from her presence, there would be no satisfaction. Now, as funny as that may, that, that may be, there is an analogy from this story uh, in the story uh, of our relationship with God. There is an analogy. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Habakkuk 1.13 says that God God's eyes are so holy that he can't even look at sin. He literally can't stand for sin to be in his presence. <clears throat> God's holiness and his justice will freak out. If sin is in his presence, and his holiness and justice will continue to freak out until his wrath is satisfied and appeased. Given this set of facts, we have a very serious dilemma. You see, we are the hare. <laughs> okay. We are the hare. And God is Harris. <laughs> and But unlike God, unlike Karis, when God freaks out about sin, he is not the one to leave. <laughs> He's not running away. God, when he is upset about sin, he remains there until he pours out all of his wrath, his anger, on what dissatisfies him until it is destroyed. And then and only then will his wrath be satisfied. If we were to pay the penalty for our own sin, if we were to bear the full brunt of God's wrath, it would take us eternity in hell to satisfy God. Now, I was thinking about this. I was having a conversation some time ago with Malcolm, and and Malcolm was telling me about this series that he was listening to uh, by Dr. Tony Evans on hell. And and he was talking about how long eternity is so that you can know how long people will be in hell. And I love this illustration. I'm like, man, I wish I thought of that. (laughs) He said that if you take the Pacific Ocean, which is the largest ocean, and you empty it of water, and completely fill it up with sand as high as Mount Everest, which is the highest mountain. And you you have a bird fly and take one grain of sand off of that, that heap once every gazillion years. One grain of sand once every gazillion years. And that bird does that at once every gazillion years until that All of the sand is gone. By the time the bird takes the last grain of sand, you've only spent one second in eternity. That's how long eternity is. It would take us forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And you could put infinity and beyond. (laughs) Okay. It would take us all of eternity to satisfy an infinite and eternal God for rebellion against him. And yet, in his love, his grace, and his mercy, God has provided us an alternative. He has provided for us a substitute. Uh, Before we go uh, jump into this passage in Leviticus, I want you to turn... You you all I know you know the scripture, but I want you to turn to first John chapter two. Hmm. Well, I might as well start at chapter one verse five and give you the context. John is here in 1 John chapter 1, giving us our alternatives on how we can respond to sin. He gives us the alternatives that we as human beings usually take in responding to sin. Verse, chapter 1, verse 5, he says, This is the message we have heard from him, him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. God is holy, he is pure, there is no sin in God at all. Verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him while we are walking in darkness, we lie and do not do what is true. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The first thing that we can do with our sin is we can ignore it. We can pretend (laughs) that we are completely right with God while continuing to live in sin. And John says that you are a liar and you are not practicing the truth. The second thing he says, verse eight, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The second thing he says that we can do in response to our sin is to deceive ourselves and say that I'm not a sinner. I've never sinned. (laughs) What is sin? Right. That's conversation we had most times a day. Right. Well, what really is sin? I, I don't know what sin is. He says that, that, If you say that you have no sin, you're deceiving yourself. But instead of um, saying that you have never sinned, he says, if you simply confess your sins, God is faithful and he is just and he will forgive you of your sins and he will treat you as if you never sinned. He will cleanse you from all of your unrighteousness. The third thing that he says, verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. The third thing we can do is is actually put it back on God. When God says you have done this wrong, you can call God a liar. No, I didn't. I I didn't do that. He says, instead. You are trying to make God. A liar and ultimately his word is not really in you now he goes on in chapter 2 and tells us the proper response to sin how are we supposed to respond to sin when we recognize that we have sinned we are sinners and we are under God's wrath and condemnation or as Paul says you are children of wrath <laughs> Chapter two, verse two, verse one. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin and, and in Greek is very emphatic, you will. OK. We have an advocate, a lawyer <laughs> with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not for ours only. But also for the sins of the whole world. Now, notice what John says here. He says, I'm writing these things to you because I don't want you to sin, right? But it's emphatic here you will sin, okay? You will sin. And when you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, you have a lawyer on your side, (laughs) okay? And he is in the presence um, of the Father. He's at the Father's right side. And he himself, not you or anything that you have done, he himself is the atoning sacrifices. Or, like other versions that say he himself is the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins and not for our sins only, but the sins of the whole world. John is telling us here that what we have to do is recognize That you cannot pay your own sin. The best that you can do is pretend it's not there or cover it up. You can like Adam and Eve. (laughs) (laughs) What sin? What sin? What are you talking about? But when you sin, what you need to do is recognize that God has provided an alternative for you. He has provided a substitute for you. And this substitute is an atoning sacrifice. Now, the question is, what do we mean by an atoning sacrifice? And for that, we go back to Leviticus chapter 16. What was Jesus doing for us on the cross? Leviticus chapter 16. Let's go back there. Now, notice here in Leviticus chapter 16, we're following up on the heels of God (coughs) uh, reminding Moses and telling Moses that he is to make sure that when he comes before the Lord, he comes before the Lord appropriately. We remember that Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, They were killed because they came into the presence of the Lord and they offered the wrong type of sacrifice before the Lord. God requires very specific things when you come into his presence. He will not accept any sacrifice. He wants a perfect sacrifice according to his very detailed request. And Nadab and Abihu got drunk one night and decided they were going to go into the presence of the Lord and offer what the Bible says is strange fire before the Lord. And the Bible says that fire came out from the presence of the Lord and burned them up and they died right there before the Lord. So. God tells Moses, I want you to make sure you tell Aaron to come correct, or he will die. Matter of fact, a Jewish tradition says that when the high priest would go into the temple, they would tie a bell around him and a rope, so that if the bell stopped ringing, they would just pull the rope on out. (laughs) Okay, he died before the Lord, okay. But God tells him very specifically what Aaron is supposed to do. And notice what happens first. This is very important for us to see the the details here. Verse 2, he says, Tell your brother Aaron not to come just at any time into the sanctuary inside the curtain before the mercy seat that is upon the ark, or he will die, for I appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. Thus Aaron shall come into the holy place with a young bull for a sin offering, And a ram for a burnt offering, he shall put on the holy linen tunic and shall have the linen garments next to his body fastened to um, uh, the linen sash and wear the linen turban. These are the holy vestments. So first, God tells him, you cannot come before me any day. The high priest is only able to come before me once a year. And he goes on to say, make sure that no one else enters the holy place when the high priest comes before me. Now, when he comes, he tells him to bring this bull and a ram because he has to offer a sacrifice for himself first. Because Aaron is a sinner. And so Aaron, he is to put on the holy garments. He's supposed to offer this sacrifice and he's supposed to go into the presence of the Lord. And he offers a sacrifice on the altar for himself first to cleanse himself and his family's sin. And then he is ready to offer a sacrifice for the people. Everyone see that. Next, we see that God tells Moses that he is supposed to take two goats. Okay, listen is what he says here, verse 7. He shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Skip over to verse 20. When he has finished atoning for the holy place in the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. Then Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess it. All um, confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel in all their transgressions, all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat and sending it away into the wilderness by means of someone designated for the task. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a barren region, and the goat shall be set free in the wilderness. I'm going to come back to the, the first goat. I just want to hit the second goat first. Now, when we talk about an atoning sacrifice, right? An atoning sacrifice has to do two things. Now, uh, when we in in First John chapter two verse two, right? Um, scholars argue over what this word hilasmos means, right? This atoning sacrifice, um, and so uh, it can uh, uh, be referenced. They argue about one of two words, right? Is it expiation, meaning expiation means that this sacrifice takes away the guilt. Or is it propitiation? It satisfies God's wrath. And so they argue back and forth, right? Back and forth, back and forth. And I think that the best thing to, for us is to put these two things together. We don't have to choose one or the other. Uh, Jesus is powerful enough to do both, <laughs> okay? All right. These two goats are selected And some people would say that one goat represents represents Jesus because he's the one that is slain and his blood is poured on on on, on the mercy seat. And and the second goat represents the nation of Israel or us because we're set free to go into the wilderness and not pay the penalty of our sin. Okay, and I think that if we take that approach to the text. We miss the point. Both goats represent Jesus. Both goats represent Jesus. And both goats represent Jesus so that he can be our substitute. First, let's look at the scapegoat. This scapegoat (coughs) is the second goat. And this goat, what they would do is on the Day of Atonement, they would come and they would lay their hands on the goat and they would confess their sins on the goat. Imagine that. I know people were probably quiet. They were like, and they're saying it out loud. They'd be like, Lord, you know what I'm doing? <laughs> don't say it too loud. Okay. And after they confessed their sins on the goat, a designated person would lead the goat outside of the nation, right? Outside the camp, off into the wilderness and the goat will be let free, to run free. And it says that it symbolizes that the goat is bearing the iniquity of the people. So the goat represents expiation. It is the removal of the guilt of the people. The guilt of the people was placed on the scapegoat, and then the scapegoat was set free, meaning that the sins of the people was no longer in God's presence. It left God's presence and went into the wilderness proudly to die, okay? So the first thing that Jesus does for us on the cross is by taking our sins upon himself, right, in offering himself as a sacrifice for sin, all of the guilt that we have for our sin is placed on Jesus and then that guilt is carried away. Jesus is the scapegoat. Now, Jesus is also the first goat which is the sin offering, right? Jesus is the one whose blood was shed and put on the mercy seat symbolizing the wages of sin is death. As the sin offering, Jesus is our propitiation. Now that our guilt has been removed from us, now God is propitiated or satisfied or appeased so that he does not have to pour out his wrath on us. As Paul said, for God has not appointed us to wrath, but he has appointed us to obtain salvation from the Lord. The only reason that God does not have to pour out his wrath on us is because he poured out his wrath on his son, and because his wrath has been poured out, he is now satisfied so that instead of giving us war and fights, he can give us love, grace, and peace. Jesus is Our propitiation, he is also our expiation. He is the one who has taken our guilt away and therefore has satisfied our penalty before his father's holiness, justice and wrath. And therefore. We are no longer enemies of God. We are now his sons and daughters. Now, I want us to turn uh, to the New Testament. We see here in Levit- Leviticus chapter six, um, 16, we see this, 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 uh, these events of the Day of Atonement, right? We see that uh, there was supposed to be two goats. One is slaughtered, right, symbolizing what Jesus would do for us on the cross. And the second one is allowed to run free into the wilderness, taking the sins of the people away. Now, what does that have to do with Jesus? How does... Uh, that relate to anything that the New Testament refers to about Jesus. I want you to turn to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. The book of Hebrews was written... Uh, to Jewish Christians who were uh, tempted to turn from Christianity back into Judaism. And so I believe Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. Uh, most uh, people, they tell you that when you are referring to the book of Hebrews, just say the author of the book of Hebrews. Okay. <laughs> right? You got that in the school thing, Antoine. The author of the book of Hebrews. And I break all of the rules. Paul said. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay. In chapter nine, uh, well, throughout the whole book, right? Um, the book of Leviticus, and this is what I, what I what I'm gonna do when I preach. When I want, re- I'm ready to preach the book of Hebrews. I'm gonna preach through Leviticus first, and so that you can see back and forth because the because Paul is trying to get us to see here. <laughs> I almost messed up. Paul is trying to get us to see here that Jesus is so much better than the Old Testament sacrifices. He is so much better than the Old Testament sacrifices. Now, the argument here in chapter 9 that that Paul is making is that the priest in the Old Covenant, they had to go before God every single year. Their sacrifices only lasted one year, and then they had to keep on offering these sacrifices over and over again and over again. But Paul's point is that Jesus is so much better that he only had to offer his sacrifice once and for all. Specifically, he says that in chapter 10. I want you to look here at Hebrews chapter 9, starting at verse 6. Listen to what he says about Jesus and how he relates to these sacrifices on the day of atonement. Verse 6, Such preparations having been made. The priests go continually into the first tent to carry out their ritual duties. But only the high priest goes into the second and he but once a year and not without taking the blood that he offers for himself and for the sins committed unintentionally by the people. But this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the sanctuary has not yet been disclosed as long as the first tent is still standing. This is a symbol of the present time, during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various baptisms, regulations for the body imposed until the time comes to set things right. But when Christ came as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy place, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls with the sprinkling of the ashes of a heifer sanctifies those who have been defiled so that their flesh is purified, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to worship the living God in verse 22 indeed under the law almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sin now notice what Paul says here Paul is making a reference to the Old Testament. He says that once all of these preparations are made, the priest is allowed to go into the presence of God one time. Right? He has to go into the presence of God one time, only on the Day of Atonement, and he has to take blood to sacrifice for his own sin first. And once he has satisfied God for his own sin, then he can make atonement for the sins of the people. But he also says that these things are inferior because he says that these sacrifices, verse 9, they cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. It can't really change anything in your heart. The only thing that you can do is just come and sacrifice animals every year. But it doesn't really affect anything eternally between you and God. But unlike the high priest of the Old Testament, Jesus being a high priest, verse 11, he says he comes to a greater and perfect tent, right, meaning himself, okay, his own body, meaning not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. And he enters into the holy place not once a year, but once for all time. His sacrifice was a perfect sacrifice, an eternal sacrifice, the only type of sacrifice God would take. Because if you were to pay your own sacrifice, it would take you all of eternity because you are a mortal (laughs) and cannot pay an eternal punishment. But Jesus being God (laughs) and being perfect, he could enter into his father's presence once, once, and offer a sacrifice, an eternal sacrifice, once for all time, that what he says here in verse 12, it provides eternal redemption, eternal forgiveness, not a forgiveness on, you know, one day of the year, not a forgiveness where every single day, God, please forgive me. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Every single day begging for forgiveness, begging for forgiveness. No, this is an eternal forgiveness that once it is given, it can never be taken away. Jesus's sacrifice is so much better that he says, verse 14, that because he offered himself through the eternal spirit, he can purify the dead conscience <laughs> of those who worship him. Because through the shedding of blood, there is forgiveness of sins. Now I want us to uh, to end here. I'm gonna get us out on time. I said one hour, and I'm gonna not have to repent and, and offer no sacrifices. <laughs> I want us to I, I'm gonna read for you from Ephesians chapter two. I think Paul summarizes everything that we need to know here. God has something against us. <laughs> and and God is gracious, he's merciful, he's loving, and he's kind, but he is also holy. He he can't just forget when we sin. As Ezekiel said, the soul that sins, it must die. But God, in his grace and his mercy, in order to appease his own wrath, in order to appease his own wrath, he provided the sacrifice for us. He came himself in the person of his son. And by coming himself and taking on our punishment, Paul says that what he did on the cross through his son was he canceled the strife that was between us. And therefore we have peace. This is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 11. Of course, we all know the beginning part of chapter 2, right? We love verses uh, 9 and 10, <laughs> right? We 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 love those verses, but uh, 8, 9, and 10, you know, for by grace we are saved. You know, we all, we all know that. And, and we don't really know the rest of the chapter. But this is what Paul says in the rest of the chapter. <laughs> chapter 2, Ephesians 2. He says, so then, remember... That at one time you Gentiles by birth called the uncircumcision by those who are called the circumcision, a physical circumcision made in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's who you were. That that is who you were. You were aliens. You were strangers. You had no promises. You had no hope. And you were without God in the world. Verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. You were afar off from God. You were far away from God. But because of the blood of Christ, because of his atoning sacrifice, because of him, his expiation, him taking away your guilt, and because of him propitiating or satisfying God's wrath, now you have been brought near to God. For he is our peace. In his flesh, he has made both groups into one, and has broken down the dividing wall, that is, the hostility between us. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace, and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. So he came and proclaimed peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, both of us have access in one spirit to the father. So then you are no longer strangers or aliens. They're not stopping you at the border. (laughs) But you are now citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone in him. The whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. He says. That because you could not keep God's law. <laughs> you were you were at odds with God, you had strife with him. But what Jesus did in his body on the cross was he tore down the things that were keeping you at odds with God. He ripped down the law, knowing that you could not fulfill it in yourself. But he perfectly satisfied the law. So much so we would go to Ephesians, I mean, uh, to Romans chapter eight. He says that what the law could not do right. God did by sending his son. In the likeness of sinful flesh. So that the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us. Right. You did not fulfill it. It is fulfilled in you who walk not according to the law, but according to the spirit. Jesus died so that he could take away our guilt, our shame. He even took away the law. Right. Us needing to fulfill the law. He did all of that for us. So now we can be at peace with God even though we sin. Jesus on the cross, <laughs> he is our scapegoat. Jesus is our scapegoat. You know what a scapegoat is, right? Somebody accuses you of something, you'd be like, well, look over there, look what they did over there. It's like, why well, I only did it because of, <laughs> because of that, right? You point the finger at somebody else. That's what we do at the cross. God says, you must die. Look at Jesus. <laughs> he is our scapegoat. He satisfied, he perfectly satisfied the requirements that God had for us. And because we are in Christ and his spirit is in us, those requirements are fulfilled in us. Because we possess His Spirit, and because Jesus has satisfied His Father, now we can have peace because He's satisfied with us in Christ. Everybody see that? What I want us to do, and I, I I try to come back to this every year when we talk about about uh, come to Easter or Good Friday and. I want us to to bring these bring back the practical application, because I think that this is something that we as Christians, uh, we wrestle with. I think if if there's anything that that I talk to people about the most, it is, um, you know, people feeling guilty about things that they've done in their past or, you know, can God forgive me? Or what about this? And and, and, and and we wrestle because we are trying to figure out how can I satisfy God? How can I please God? Somebody called me the other day and said, uh, do you think that um, if I do X, Y, Z, that, you know, God is not going to give me blessings in the future? <laughs> All right. You, do you think God is like that? The answer is no. God is not like that. He knows you can't satisfy him anyway. So he sent his son. Now, that's not, I'm not, do not hear me say, well, Pastor said we're gonna do whatever we want. <laughs> okay? <laughs> that, that is not what I'm saying. That's not the point I'm making, okay? But the the, the point I'm the point I'm making really is this we as Christians don't have to beat ourselves up with whether or not God is pleased with us, right? O- on the one hand, the answer is always no, <laughs> okay? No, we, we, we sin and we fall short of the glory of God, but that is irrelevant, irrelevant. From <laughs> My favorite verse, e- Ephesians 1, 6, because he has accepted us in the beloved, yes, you sin, yes, you fall short, yes, we need to confess our sins, yes, we need to repent, but even when we do sin, we have an atoning sacrifice, and he himself is the satisfaction for our sin, so that all we have to do is not we we we, we, we What can I do to repay God? Make it up, make it up, make it up. You cannot make it up. All you can do is confess your sins. And he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. And you don't have to keep trying to make it up. He will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You have an atoning sacrifice. He has already taken your guilt out of the way. What about the stuff I'm going to do next week? <laughs> he took that already, too. <laughs> okay. No, you shouldn't do it. Okay. Don't do it. Okay. You it. Like, well, he took it. He already, you know. <laughs> okay. But he has taken the guilt from all of our sins, past, present, and future. He is an eternal sacrifice. He has taken all of those sins, past, present, and future, on himself and he has removed them out of his father's sight so that his father is pleased with you even though you sin and if you confess your sins he's faithful and just to forgive you and he will cleanse you you don't have to work it out because you have an advocate with the father jesus christ the righteous one and he himself is the uh, the atoning sacrifice for your sins And not only for your sins, but the sins of the whole world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for allowing us to be able to come again and reflect on the sacrifice that you paid for us. We thank you, Lord, that you are so perfect and so holy and so awesome, so great that we don't have to try to continue to make sacrifices over and over and over again in order to to please you. We know that your sacrifice is so great, as Paul says in chapter nine and in chapter 10 of of Hebrews, that you offered your sacrifice once for all time. And when you completed your work, you did what no priest in the Old Testament had ever done you sat down at the right hand of your father. No priest had ever been able to sit down in the temple or in the tabernacle because their work was never complete. There was always some sacrifice that was needed in order to appease you. But your son's sacrifice was so great that after he did it, he could say, it is finished. And he he could sit down. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to reflect on Calvary, on the cross. Help us to see that we are not just forgiven at the moment of salvation and then left on our own to continue to try to work off our guilt before you. Help us to see what Paul wrote here, as we saw in in, uh, Hebrews chapter 9, that Jesus' sacrifice could do what no Old Testament sacrifice could do. Those sacrifices could not purify the conscience of the worshipers. But Jesus' sacrifice could. Not only did his sacrifice satisfy you, but it can also satisfy our guilty consciences. Help us not to beat ourselves up over things that you have cast into a sea of forgetfulness. Help us not to try to keep working on things that you have already satisfied. We pray, God, that you would help us to recognize every single day how great and glorious your sacrifice was. Because you paid the penalty once for all. And now we have peace with you. We thank you now for all these things. We ask, Lord, that every time we come here, you would help us to get a better understanding, a clearer focus of what you did for us on the cross so that we can live in light of that every single day. Amen. Amen. All right. Um.